Wednesday night, we're gonna go uh, continue our study through Luke and we are in Luke chapter four. Why don't you turn to Luke chapter four where we pick up our study. I'm just gonna take one verse again uh, from our upcoming chapter four. Um, we'll look at the whole chapter in context because the verse I'm gonna read is important to know the context. Um, I'm not gonna go over the context today, but I will on Wednesday night. Um, but I do wanna show you um, something that's just noteworthy and it's sort of part two from last week. Last week, we saw John the Baptist and his first sentence of his first sermon. And it was fiery and prickly. Um, do you remember when John the Baptist started his service? You're a bunch of vipers. That's, and he wasn't talking to the religious leaders like Jesus. When Jesus was talking to the religious leaders, calling them vipers and whitewashed tombs, mouths were open sepulchers. And like Jesus was hard on the religious guys, but John was hard on everybody. He was calling everybody snakes. You're just a bunch of snakes. And we saw how John the Baptist's message was that of repentance, but even that didn't save. The baptism John had wasn't even a saving baptism because it was called a baptism to repentance. But salvation doesn't come by just repentance. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, it's interesting how John the Baptist, his message was that of preparation, preparing for the Messiah, Jesus. Um, John the Baptist, um, you know, message was prickly and brutal and tough so that when Jesus came, uh, Jesus could uh, give a message of grace and compassion and kindness. Um, those two things go hand in hand. And we, we kind of began that discussion last week. But um, so why John the Baptist and his message was, was prickly, what did Jesus, his first messages sound like? Well, in Luke chapter three, we saw John, uh, John the Baptist baptize Jesus. That's when Jesus's ministry began. The moment he was baptized, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in the form of a dove. Um, and there, he, he hadn't done any miracles. He didn't raise anybody from the dead. Um, his ministry hadn't started, but once he got baptized, that was the, the point where ministry was on. And one of the first things he does after being baptized in Luke chapter three, he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. And there in Nazareth, he starts uh, reading the scriptures from Isaiah in uh, the, the synagogue there in Nazareth, his hometown. And the men of Nazareth, we're gonna look at their response to Jesus uh, Wednesday night, because it is kind of an interesting response. It's, it's kind of un, uncharacteristic of what you would, you would picture. But their initial response, I think, was actually dialed in. It's just what they did after that that went haywire. We'll look at that on Wednesday. What, what, was, what was their response to Jesus reading the scriptures there um, in, uh, and then speaking there in the synagogue? It's our, our text uh, for the morning. It's Luke chapter four, verse 22. Let's take a look. Luke 4, 22. It says, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? <laughs> Interesting, they're wondering, wow, his words are so gracious. Um, now, we're gonna see that their attitude changes about this. Why? Because you start to see it even in this verse. They say, but, but wait, isn't this just Joseph's son? We know this kid. He grew up in our neighborhood. Um, now, I do wonder, what was it like having a perfect child living in your neighborhood? Did they suspect something was special about Jesus? Man, he never got mad, never did anything bad, never got detention after school. Um, like, Jesus was this perfect child grew up growing up in their neighborhood. And like, isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, and here he is speaking wonderful words, words of wonder about grace. They wondered at his gracious words. Now, this is hard for us to get our brains around because, um, uh, because they were not used to gracious words. The Jews were used to brutal words. I'm not just talking about John the Baptist. I'm talking about 
The Jewish religion is brutal. Um, the law, we talked about that last week. The law served a purpose to drive us as a schoolmaster, remember? To drive us to Jesus Christ. Um, but now Jesus is here speaking words of graciousness and, um, and it's so important to see um, how they, they, they hear Jesus. <clears throat> and how do you hear Jesus? That's the question of the day. Um, do you have a good listening uh, and hearing ability when you read the scripture? Or do you need a hearing aid to help you hear the tone of scripture, the attitude behind scripture? Because I'm concerned that there's a lot of people that struggle with hearing the scriptures correctly. And it really is an important thing. Um, trend, we talked about interpretation last week of interpreting scripture co correctly and rightly. Um, <laughs> I think uh, translation and stuff like that. <clears throat> I was speaking at a, a little thing in Mexico years and years ago and as a, I was a children's pastor. So I went across the border and was sharing the gospel with a bunch of Mexican children and having a good time there. But you know, when I was a children's pastor, I had all these little tricks up my sleeve to kind of use as object lessons. One of the things I used to do is I, I played around with flash paper, if anybody knows what that is. Um, but flash paper is basically, it looks like a normal sheet of paper, uh, eight and a half by 11. Um, but it's actually a special paper. If you bring it close to a flame, it just goes poof and it's gone. Um, no smoke, no nothing, just disappears, poof. Um, and so I was doing this thing where I was gonna show the kids that Jesus is the light of the world. And I had a little flame over here, it's Jesus, the light of the world, a little flame. And then I had a, the paper that, and I, I thought, I'm gonna write the word sin on there, of course in Spanish. And my fluent uh, Spanish uh, usage, <laughs> uh, muy poquito, if you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wrote what I thought was the word sin. Now the, the word sin in Spanish is what? Pecado. So I wrote pretty close, pescado, um, which is actually what? Fish. See, you guys are way smarter than I, of course I, hey, I was like 19 or something. But anyway, I wrote pescado on there and I'm thinking, okay, now I'm telling these little Mexican children, they're all looking at my, you know, and I, I bring it to the flame and poof, it just disappears. They're like, oh, that's great. But see, the problem is I was saying Jesus takes away the sins of the world. That's what I was trying to say. But they're thinking, um, we're gonna have fish tacos for lunch. Like, like it, it just didn't translate. It didn't translate very, very well. But, um, but as it turns out, sometimes it's the fault of the speaker. Uh, sometimes it's the fault of the translator to misinterpret. But, uh, but sometimes it's the fault of the listener, listener. And when it comes to the Bible, it's always the fault of the listener, the reader, if there's a problem. Uh, the Bible's infallible, it's perfect. Um, and I think it's important to understand that. Um, you know, when people hear things, they come with sort of a preconceived idea or, or you know, somehow miss it in the message. I remember years ago I was teaching uh, uh, and I, I was talking on a Sunday morning here at Athey Creek about um, you know, the paganism of Rome and, and the links to um, some of our, even our Christmas traditions and stuff. And I, I kind of told the story that led to basically some of the ancient paganism that the Roman Empire embraced that comes from ancient Babylon. I was talking about Nimrod, Samu, uh, uh, Tammuz, uh, Sem Semiramis. I was talking about that history. And I told the kind of the story of that. Well, the next Sunday, this young man comes up to me and he's shaking, he's so upset. Uh, and he said, Pastor Brett, uh, I wasn't here last Sunday. I was like, oh great, here we go. Um, but my girlfriend was here and she said, I'm like, oh boy, here, here we really go. What did your girlfriend say? Well, she said, you guys believe in some pagan religion, uh, Samaramis and Tammuz. And, and I was like, okay, uh, you know, settle down there, tiger. Um, we, 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 I was sharing about Roman paganism. That's not what we believe. And he's, are you sure? Like, it took me like five minutes to convince him. I don't believe in Roman paganism, mystery Babylon, Nimrod. I don't believe
believe in that. And I said, it's actually a, a false fake uh, poser uh, version of the true story of resurrection and Jesus, the son of the living God. And I had to explain it to him and he, it took me a while to get him you know, off the ledge. But um, I just thought, wow, uh, his poor girlfriend, like she must not be the sharpest uh, knife in the drawer, if you know what I'm saying. Cause, and I thought, man, did I butcher that? So I went back and listened to the teaching, uh, you know, and I was like, no, I didn't butcher that. I, I think it was the fault of the hearer. She went home and just didn't, didn't understand. And I thought, oh man, communication's tough. And people interpret and hear things they wanna hear. Or it's funny how people kind of listen and it's a tricky, tricky business. But when we struggle with the Bible, it's not the Bible's fault. It is, it is God's holy word. Um, and uh, by the way, have you ever noticed how tricky even texting can be on your phone or sending an email? You know, when you're writing the text, you're, you're hearing birds chirping in the background, rainbows and petunias, and you're just like, oh, the happy little text. And you even put a little, you're, you're, you're hearing in your mind, you know, hey, you're talking really nicely like this. And then the person that reads is like, rah, rah, rah. it's like somehow they translate your text into some, you know, like you're, you're scolding or yelling at them. It's like, wow, how did that happen? Well, that's what happens with the Bible. People read the Bible and they hear a tone of God's angry at you. God's disappointed in you. God's gonna destroy you and he hates you. And on and on the list goes. And people, some people, they read their morning devotions and by the end of their morning, they're, they're depressed and their anxiety is up to the nth degree and, and they're, they're sure they're going to hell because they read the Bible perhaps with sort of a, a wrong hearing. And there's some people that really do need um, a hearing aid. You know, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even dividing the center of soul and spirit, which is the idea of it knows the person, the hu human being, and the joints of the marrow, the discerners of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the Bible knows about us. So um, the Bible does its work. Um, and we also know, you know, from you know, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is God-breathed or inspired. That's where we get the word inspiration. Um, you know, it's not just written by man. Man's hand would write the Bible, but the Holy Spirit would speak through the, uh, the biblical writers uh, for inspiration. And, and the Bible says there in, you know, 2 Timothy 3, it's good for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, uh, that the man of God might be perfect or complete, mature, equipped for every good work. So um, that's kind of the idea here is, is we approach the Bible knowing it's perfect, but can I just say, if you read the Bible and you're coming away feeling beat up and, and bummed out or depressed or condemned, um, you, you're not hearing the Bible correctly. Uh, do you ever feel condemned when you read the Bible? Well, how do you know, Brett, that the Lord's not trying to condemn you? Because the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're a Christian and you're a believer in, in Christ and you've accepted the work of the cross, you will never accurately read the Bible and feel condemned afterward. Condemnation is not for the Christian. Now there is a difference, you might feel convicted. Convicted is where you know, man, I've blown it, I've done something wrong. But conviction is that which makes you wanna do better. And it drives you to following Christ and, and getting closer to the Lord and saying, I, I'm wrong and I need to change that uh, and I'm gonna fix that. That's conviction. Condemnation, I'll never get it. I'm gonna go to hell because I, I've sinned and I've done so much wrong that I'll never measure up. And, uh, and that's condemnation. There's no condemnation. So how do you know when you're reading the Bible if, if it's doing its job and, and you're hearing it correctly? I love the psalmist. Even in the Old Testament, the psalmist, he said this. He said in Psalm 19, seven and eight, the law of the Lord, which is a way of saying the scriptures in the Old Testament, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. That's, that just rolls off the tongue, making wise the simple. But do you know what that's saying? It's saying making stupid people smart. That's, that's, what it, that's what it says. If you're dumb, you'll be smart. If you read your Bible, boy, that's a life verse for me. Um, the, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What does the word of God do? Does it condemn you? No, look at the words here, converting the soul. Sure, making dumb people smart. Um, uh, right and rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightening. The, the point of the word of God, if you're reading it correctly, if you see it all in context of itself and read the whole thing from cover to cover and start to understand the Bible, you will even see the darkest of scriptures and rejoice. See, there's people like we started to talk about last week that read the Bible and go, it's just blood and guts, the Old Testament. We need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because it's just blood and guts and people, ethnic cleansing. Have you ever heard the atheist say, God's into ethnic cleansing. He wiped out whole people groups in the Old Testament. But you wanna know something shocking? Maybe this will shock some of you, but when I read about the blood and guts in the Old Testament, I rejoice. It makes me glad. Why, bro? Because you wanna see people die? No, because I... I know how to read scripture and, and, and the point of the Old Testament blood and guts is to say, I deserve to be the Amalekites. I'm the one that should have been the people group totally destroyed because I was sacrificing my children on altars and, and doing all the evil, sexual, horrible things the Amalekites did. They deserve to die and I deserve to die. But that's the whole point of that story. God says, but I love even the most ungodly sinner and, and I love them so much that I'm gonna fix the problem of sin where people are doomed to hell. So when I read the Old Testament blood and guts, it makes me so glad. Thank you, Lord, for your gracious, kind work of salvation. Uh, even the darkest of scriptures, you'll rejoice if you know how to read the scripture because these are the results, rejoicing the heart, pure, enlightening the eyes. Um, are we hearing scripture correctly? Here's a little funny one in John chapter 12, verse 28. I won't talk about uh, the, what this is all about as much. Uh, what's funny about this is the same crowd hears two different things. Um, look at this. It's, um, it says in John 12, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people therefore, verse 29, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Well, which was it? Was it a thunder or was it an angel? Which one was it? And the two groups, they heard it differently. Well, I don't know what an angel sounds like, but it sounds maybe different than a thunder. Um, they disagreed on what they heard. And that, that's what I've noticed. People will hear things and disagree. Um, so what, what, what do we need? We need to make sure and hear the voice of the Lord that does come in different ways. Sometimes it is a thunder. Sometimes it is um, a, an angel or even a small whisper. The Lord told the Israelis in, in uh, Isaiah 30, I will be a still small voice whispering in your ear, telling you when to turn right or left. Or sometimes he's booming from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm, I'm well pleased. It reminds me of Ezekiel 43 too. Behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east and his voice was like the noise of many waters and the earth shined with his glory. Um, what's the voice of many waters? It's not that it's just tons of water making a big Niagara Falls. The idea of this, if you look in the original text, is it's the voice of many waters. Sometimes the Lord sounds like a drip, a little quiet drip, or a little trickling stream, or Niagara Falls. 
but he has the voice of many waters. Um, the book of Revelation jumps on that same uh, bandwagon as Ezekiel, uh, Revelation 1.15, um, and his feet, Jesus, um, unto fine brass, likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice uh, as the sound of many waters. That's, that's an interesting idiom of the Bible. His voice is that of many waters. So there are people who hear the word, and the question is, are you hearing it um, that draws you closer to the Lord and makes you love the Lord all the more? Or do you feel guilty and condemned and you're, you're afraid of the Lord and you're sure he's mad at you and he's the cosmic killjoy that wants to squish you like a bug? Um, uh, is that who God is? And you have to be careful because you, you might just be hearing the scriptures um, wrong. So, so the people of Jesus' time, they were used to hearing the, the religious leaders, um, hearing about the law and the rules and the regulations. And you know, the Pharisees were the keepers of the law and they'd walk around piously, you know, uh, very holily walking around. Um, and the people thought, wow, those Pharisees, they're just so holy. There's no, we don't even have a prayer. You know, that's why when Jesus said, like we talked about last week, when Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And the people would just throw it up and said, huh, well, then who gets to go to heaven? That's the point. And Jesus didn't give the answer to the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he is the answer to the Sermon on the Mount. That's an important thing to know about the Sermon on the Mount. So the people were used to hearing all about the 613 laws that I'm sure y'all have memorized by this time since I've put it up on the screen so many times. Um, but these 613 laws, um, that's what they were used to hearing. You can't do this and you can't do that. You better do this and you better do the other. Um, but um, if you messed up on any part of the law, you were unclean and you had to do a very rigid sacrificial system to sort of make yourself clean. And the Jews just kept adding to these laws to make it even harder. And by the first century, by the time Jesus comes around, the people were just burdened, heavy. It was just a heavy message. So suddenly Jesus comes and starts talking about kindness and mercy and compassion. And the breakers of the laws, the worst of the worst, Jesus um, would say, I don't condemn you. Um, and, and this shocked the people. That's why these people in Nazareth say, we wonder at these gracious words. We've never heard somebody speak like this before. Meanwhile, the Jews were trying to become more holy. Um, remember how the, the people Jesus got on were the religious guys that were, remember he said, you're lengthening the hems of your garments and, and broadening your phylacteries. What's a phylactery? Well, a phylactery is something the Jews, even to this day, <clears throat> if you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you can find a guy like this who's got a phylactery on his forehead. And <clears throat> what is that? It's, it's a little box where they put Hebrew scriptures in the box. Um, and it's because of the Hebrew scriptures that says you're supposed to write um, you know, uh, the scriptures and remember them and put them on your forehead. I think what it meant is you're supposed to know the scriptures. I don't think it meant to put a box on your forehead. Um, but uh, they do that. But in Jesus' time, they just started making bigger and bigger boxes. And the most holy guy was walking around with this you know, big cardboard box on his head or whatever, I don't know. But um, Jesus said, you guys are hypocrites by doing that. Um, but here in our text, Jesus is not telling, you know, I'm gonna make a bigger box on my head and I'm gonna lengthen my borders of my garment. I'm gonna walk around holy and, and you better be holy like I'm, you know, like me. Um, and if you're not holy enough, you're going to hell. It wasn't that at all. Jesus spoke gracious words. This is kind of an interesting thing. Um, have you ever wondered, you know, do we do stuff that sort of adds to what appears to be holy, but it may not be? 
here at AC Creek, when you walk in, you know, who, who are the people that are trying to look spiritual or trying to do stuff? Or maybe we do stuff and we're, we don't even realize we're kind of being sort of goofy about stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder, you know, if Jesus showed up at AC Creek on a Sunday morning, would he fit in? Would we be happy to have him around? Um, would we think he was spiritual or would we think, who is that guy? Um, what would he wear? Would he carry a Bible? Would he have a leather cover on his Bible? <laughs> well, Brad, everybody knows if you have a leather cover, you're actually at Athey Creek, you're really a holy. No, I, I just got a leather cover years ago uh, from a saddle maker uh, because I was a youth pastor and my Bible was constantly being abused by youth and children. And I needed something that kind of held up more than the little paper Bible that you get at the store. Um, but, but it's funny, you know, it's like it can become this weird thing. Even stuff that seems so good. What about, have you ever been in a spiritual setting? Maybe you're in a home group or, uh, you know, or, or in the foyer after service. And there's always that person that's the first one to uh, initiate prayer. Oh, let's pray. Come on, everybody gather. Let's pray for, what, let's, and, and everybody's like, oh, he's just so spiritual. The first one, I should have thought of that. You know, I should have been the one to say, let's pray together. Um, uh, question, how many times did Jesus do that in his ministry? Not really ever. He never did group prayer. Now, I'll say maybe you can argue for the Garden of Gethsemane. He took Peter, James, and John into the garden and he told them, watch and pray with me. But even there, he went off on a distance and left those guys and they, they slept with the whole thing. Um, so it wasn't really the great experience you might think it to be. But you never see Jesus huddle up. Come on, let's, let's pray for brother so-and-so. No, he didn't do that. When Jesus prayed, what did he do almost every time? went off by himself and even taught us, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray out in the public. Go into your closet and pray by yourself and the Lord will hear you uh, when you pray. Uh, I, I just wonder, you know, we do these spiritual things. <clears throat> Some people say, bro, why don't you guys always do those big public prayer and fasting times like so many of these churches? And let, I'm gonna say, I'm not knocking that. If people wanna do big prayer and fasting things, that's great. But I, I do think it's funny how we've almost gone the opposite direction I think we should all be into praying and we should pray without ceasing. That's what the Bible teaches, pray without ceasing. This is the will of God. And, um, but when we do these big group public you know, shows of prayer, I, I think sometimes it can become very quickly kind of just a show. Um, and it's, and, and so, oh, look how holy we're fasting and praying. And we're, you know, I, I think we have to be careful about that. But Jesus, um, you know what the religious leaders perceived him as? Not spiritual at all. They, they thought he was like the heathens. Um, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, people marveled at his gracious words. It's funny to me that they're not marveling at his amazing intellect. Because we know last week we learned he was 12 years old and he was stumping all the PhDs in Jerusalem. He could have walked around just totally blowing people away with his intellect, but he didn't do that. They marveled at his gracious words. Mark 12, 37 says the common people, not the intellectuals, the common people heard him gladly. So the religious leaders were legalistic, brutal, prideful, burdensome hypocrites, but Jesus was full of gladness, graciousness, kindness. Even kids liked running up to Jesus and hanging out with him. <clears throat> you know, as I read the story of the Pharisees in the New Testament, do you think children liked Pharisees? I'm having a, 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 just a hunch the children would say, uh, yeah, I, I, there's a Pharisee, run for your life. Um, because the Pharisees were the schoolmasters, if you would, from the law. Um, they're, they're not fun, they're fancy clothes. They walked around piously, tooting their horn, horn when they'd give a, a, some money to a poor person, da, 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 and they'd give the money. And it was just really uh, kind of a grotesque hypocrisy. You never hear of children running up to the Pharisees. 
but you do of Jesus. When Jesus walked this earth, children loved Jesus and they ran up to Jesus and the disciples, they were the grouchy guys that still had some Phariseeism in them because they were Jews who were raised in that culture. They said, get these children out of here. And Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Now, for those of you that went to public school, suffering the little children doesn't mean make them suffer. Um, uh, it means to allow them, uh, King James, allow the children to come to me. Don't hinder the children. I love that Jesus was a children's kind of guy, that kids liked Jesus. Um, that tells me a lot about Jesus. Um, but Jesus wasn't fancy. He wasn't Mr. Good-looking and perfect and pious in a way that was like the Pharisees. He was perfect and pious legitimately. What did that look like? Well, what I find is interesting, there was no outward sign that you could identify Jesus with, so much so that remember when Judas betrayed Jesus? He had to say, okay, guys, we're gonna go. He's gonna be in the garden with these other guys, the, the, the disciples, the 11 other disciples, Judas told them. So I'll identify the one that you want. I'll, I'll identify him with a kiss. Why did Judas have to identify Jesus? The answer, um, there was no, he didn't say, just look for the one that's, handsome, glowing. He's got the plate behind his head and he's sitting on a rock with his fingers kind of, what's the picture, you know, kind of. Um, no, there was no outward, Jesus is the one that's glowing. Um, they all have to identify him because he was just a normal dude. Isaiah the prophet prophesied about the Messiah in this way. Isaiah 53, two, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, speaking of the netzer, the messianic root of David, the root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't this really good looking, you know, surfer from Southern California, like uh, the door knocking picture or whatever. Uh, that's, not, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Um, the way that uh, the people saw Jesus differently wasn't as much the way he looked, but it was in his gracious words, they wondered. Um, now, with all that said, if Jesus was all about gracious words and, and, and speaking kindness and compassion, um, and, and we know, he's, like we talked about last week, uh, he did have fiery sermons too, just like John the Baptist, but even that would bring us to his kindness. The question is, how do you hear Jesus? Maybe even a better question, how do you hear the word of God? Because don't forget, they're one and the same. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John chapter one. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus who came and lived among us. The living uh, word incarnation, uh, you know, incarnate um, is, is the idea there. Jesus is the living word. And so the question is, how do you hear the word? Do you hear it more from like somebody yelling at you and angry? Or do you hear the, the goodness of the word? Even when it's brutal, even when it's tough. Let's do a test. I'm gonna give you a series of tests. Have you ever had a hearing test? This is a, hear, this is a biblical hearing test. Um, are you guys ready? Here we go. Test number one, where art thou? What do you hear when you hear those words? Well, it came from Genesis chapter three, verse nine. You know the story. It's the very beginning of all sin. There are Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, everything's perfect, uh, there's no problems at all. Um, and God says, Adam and Eve, uh, you can eat of all the trees, all the trees you can eat, but the one in the middle over there, the tree of the knowledge of good evil, you can't eat of that one. And they're like, which tree was that again? Just like human nature. Uh, the first place they go is the tree you're not supposed to go to and eat from. Well, you know the story, the serpent, um, you know, tricks Eve. 
Um, and by the way, how does he do it? He says, he starts out, what's the first thing Satan says to humanity? Hath God said, that's the oldest trick in the book. It literally is the oldest trick in this book. The oldest trick of Satan against humanity is right here. The oldest trick in the book is to question God's word. Hath God said that in the day you eat of this fruit, you'll die? You will surely not die, but your eyes will be open. You'll be enlightened and you'll become like God. And Eve, she's like, ooh, I wanna be like God. Now, now, in Eve's defense, which I probably shouldn't, but in her defense, she's wanting to be like God, but she's going about it being disobedient to God by eating of the fruit. Um, so, you know, why we kind of go, boy, Eve, you really made a big mistake there. But, you know, um, I always kind of, I still chuckle at this because do you think Adam would have been tricked by that? Um, Adam would have been standing there in the surface and said, you'll be enlightened, you'll become like God, your eyes will be open. And Adam would have went, hmm, and walked away. Because that's what most men would do. Um, I think it's true. Men and women are different. Uh, women have a desire to be more like the Lord. And, and, and I think women have a spiritual depth that's really impressive. And us guys, we're kind of sometimes as sensitive spiritually as a brick. Uh, and so the Lord, you know, he, he, he warns them, don't eat of that tree. And, and, but Eve's deceived by the serpent and she's lured in. How did Adam eat the fruit? It wasn't this, you know, uh, you know Oprah Winfrey, Shirley MacLaine, new age, you'll be enlightened, your eyes will be open because men aren't trampled by that. He just saw a beautiful woman and said, okay, whatever you want me to do, I'll, I'll do it. Eat of the fruit, big boy, here you go. It's like, it's like wow, okay, I'll do the fruit. Um, it's kind of embarrassing really. Um, well, so, but Adam gets the blame. It's, you know, the original sin is attributed not to Eve, but to Adam, because there's reasons for that we don't have time to get into. But Adam and Eve, as soon as they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then they know, they're, they're suddenly they know good and evil, and they, the first thing they notice is they're embarrassed, they're naked. And, and that was not an issue before, because all things were pure and good and innocent before the fall of man. Now they're, they notice they're naked and they're embarrassed. So they run over to the fig tree and start picking fig leaves and sewing them together. I've been to the Middle East and I've seen the fig tree leaves over there. Bad idea. <laughs> have you ever seen those big fig leaves? They have like little scratchy follicles on the backside of the fig leaf that are very scratchy. And I don't think that would have been very, so there's Adam and Eve, you know, with their little fig leaf out, you know, hiding uh, in the bushes, you know, wearing their little fig tree stuff. And, and it's just not a good situation. They're hiding from God, um, and then suddenly God, well, here's the verse, Genesis 3, 9. It says, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? How do you hear that question? Where art thou? Because if you're not hearing the scripture or know the scripture, you're reading it like this, that tone you hear um, by a, a school teacher that's mad at you or, is, or, or a cosmic cop. Where are you? You know, I've caught you. Come out with your hands up. Is that what you hear? You're busted, Adam, you little stinker. Like, is that what God's saying? Where are you? Um, now, this is something I think we can agree on. Did, did God lose the only two people on the planet? Oh no, what if I, I can't find Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam, where are you? Is that what he said? Well, we know that's not true. God didn't lose the two people on the planet. So why does God ask this question? Is he saying, you know, where are you? I'm coming for you. You better be nervous because you're about to get busted. Like, here's the way people, they think, and, and they're, they're, he's gonna call them out and he's gonna give them the curses, the curses because of their sin. And that's the way people read the story of Genesis. But actually, there's a whole nother side of that story. I, I believe you could hear it that way. Where, where are you at, Adam? I'm coming for you, you're toast. Or is this God 
as a brokenhearted father who loves his people, who knows that they now have fallen in sin. And, and so what does God do? He, he gives Adam a chance to sort of come clean. This is, the, this is the beginning. Before a person can be restored, there needs to be an acknowledgement of sin. It's also called repentance. So here, God is giving Adam a chance to confess where he's at. And I'm, I don't think it was geography that we're talking about. Where was Adam at geographically? I think it's more where are you at spiritually? And the truth is, Adam is in a fallen, sinful state. And before God hands out curses and all that stuff, as people might misconstrue in the story, does anybody know what's the first thing God actually does? Does anybody remember? He gives him some new clothes. And what kind of clothes did he give him? Anybody remember? Yeah, he gave him some animal skins, which means an animal had to die. That's kind of interesting. It's all part of sin. When sin entered the world, death entered the world. And so this animal has to die and be skinned. Seems like God did the skinning for you PETA people out there. <clears throat> Just saying. God skinned an animal. Uh, for an animal skins to go on a person, that had to be skinned. God did that. Um, and he puts on this, these skins, which replaces those scratchy little fig leaves that they made for themselves. Um, which is what an amazing picture, isn't it? If you know the rest of the Bible, you know, some people are still stuck on the peanut. Oh, they killed a poor little animal. But as a Bible reader, I think, oh, the Lord says in his word, without the shedding of blood, there can be no, what? Remission of sin. What a picture. God kills an animal sacrificially to cover their nakedness. That's, that's a picture of the rest of the Bible. God's gonna come up with a way to cover the sin of humanity. And it's not just gonna be some animal, it's gonna be the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. See, I'm already, I'm already almost choked up in the story of Adam and Eve. And before I even get the, to the curses part, I'm already like, wow, God is so compassionate and so merciful. People miss this stuff, but it's part of the Bible. How do you hear, where art thou? Um, do you hear it like God's gonna come and hand out the curses? By the way, even the curses became a blessing, if you think about it. I know there's a curse with childbearing, pain and childbearing, but you moms, was bearing children a curse? It actually turned out to be a blessing because we love our children. Just like the Levites were cursed because they circumcised the Shechemites and then when the guys were all in pain, they went at nighttime and killed them all in their beds. And so the Levites, along with Simeon, they all got cursed and the, the curse was, you Levites are not gonna have an inheritance in the promised land. Do you guys remember this stuff? Um, but did that end up being a curse for the Levites? No, because remember at the Mount Sinai, when the law came down, the people were dancing nakedly around a golden calf and Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? And guess what tribe stood up? The Levites. And so they became, because of that incident, they became the priests. So when they got into the promised land, God gave them a special inheritance. They didn't get an inheritance. Like, um, like the land, like everybody else, all the other tribes, they got the, the, the Bible said, your inheritance will be me, says the, says the Lord. Um, Moses was cursed when he you know, yelled at the people, you morons, must we fetch water for you? Smack, 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 and he hit the rock and water came out. And the Lord said, Moses, come over here, buddy. You misrepresented me before the people. Uh, and because you did this, blew the top and smacked the rock a second time when you weren't supposed to, um, because you did this, you're not gonna enter into the promised land, just like the Levites. Uh, kind of a curse was given to Moses. Question, did Moses ever go into the promised land? He did, God snuck him in. How? Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Jesus and Moses and Elijah in the Holy Land. Not only was Moses in the Holy Land, he was standing there next to God. 
That's, I'd take that over just crossing with Joshua and you know, fighting. Like I'd, go, I'd go right to Moses' plan, uh, directly landing in the Holy Land with Jesus right there. That's pretty cool. God takes the curse and he turns it around for a blessing. So when you read curses and horrible blood and guts in the Bible, it always, always, always points us back to God's plan to redeem humanity back to himself. Even the worst of the stories, let's keep going. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an easy lob. If that one's a little complicated, how about this one? John chapter eight, go and sin no more. What do you hear when you hear that? We talked about this last week, didn't we? The woman who was caught in adultery and did Jesus say, go and sin no more, better. You better clean up your act, woman. Is that what he said? No, I believe he said it with perhaps even a gleam in his eye. Oh, Brett, you're reading into the scripture. Well, you tell me. Remember all the other guys were gonna stone her to death we talked about last week. They all dropped their rocks and left because Jesus nailed them. Then when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those that are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Again, this was not the message people, the Jews were used to hearing. They'd been hearing for millennia. If you commit adultery and we catch you, you're dead. You're gonna be stoned to death. That's the law of Moses. But Jesus comes and says, where are all your condemners and accusers? And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I don't think he was invited, like you better not sin again. It was more like, you're free to not sin. You don't have to mess your life up. You don't have to do stuff that's gonna be contrary to your well-being. Sin is bad because it messes you up. That's what's wrong with adultery is it hurts you. And that's why I don't want you to do it. So it's not like he's saying, you better not go and sin again. It's more like you're free to not sin. You're free to walk with me and do the right thing. And, and I want your life to be rich and blessed. So, so you don't have to sin anymore. You're free. Well, Brad, I don't know. I, I, you read it pretty friendly. I kind of read it like you said, a woman, because they didn't like women in those days. Uh, woman, where are your accusers? Like, is that how he said? You know, uh, it's, it's interesting because not only does he say go and sin no more, which is, is a more of an invitation, not a, you know, a warning as much as an invitation, but even the word woman, if you look in the original text of the Greek New Testament, the word is a great word, it's gune, uh, when he says woman, but it, it, this is the Greek definition right here out of Greek dictionary. A woman of any age, regardless of marital status. Now, by the way, this is helpful for some of you that don't know what a woman is today. Um, um, uh, it's an adult female, according, that's what we, that's, that's important to know. But in this Greek word, it's a woman of any age, but when it's, this word is used, it's a term of admiration, kindness, favor, or respect. There's another time where Jesus used this word gune when he said woman, it was to his own mother, Mary when he used the term of great affection and great respect. Um, Jesus wasn't saying woman, he was saying woman with a warmth and a affection and kindness and even admiration. That's the word he used. There's other words in the Greek where he could have said it more derogatorily. Um, adulterous, you know, loser woman. He could have said that if he wanted to, but that's not how Jesus rolled at all. They marveled at his gracious words, go and sin no more. Um, you know, um, it's funny how uh, the religious leaders were constantly upset with Jesus. They're the ones who couldn't hear him. They didn't wanna hear a word he had to say. And they thought he was wacko because they considered him a sinner because he'd hang out with people like this and be kind to the woman who was caught in adultery. So much so that they accused him, like in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a man gluttonous. They called him a glutton. 
and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and Democrats too. No, it doesn't say that. No, publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. They accused Jesus of being a, a guy who hung out with sinners and, and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he was a glutton and wine-bibber. That's what they accused him of. Um, but they had it wrong. Jesus was actually one who, instead of like them, these religious leaders laying burdens on people, Jesus in Matthew eleven thirty 30 said, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus didn't lay a trip on people. If you're done with reading the scripture in your morning devotions and you feel burdened, you may have heard the scriptures wrongly because the scriptures, the, the low I come in the volume of the book is written of me, Jesus would say. So if you're reading the scripture and you're feeling a heavy burden, you might not be hearing the scriptures. Oh, there's a way of right burden, I suppose, but not the kind of burden. Jesus said, I will make my burden on you easy. My load is light. That's what he promised. Such an important thing. Um, so the test number three, first test, Genesis three, where art thou? Test number two, go and sin no more. How do you hear this one? This is, a, this is gets start to be heavy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. First Peter 1 Peter 1.16. What do you hear? You're like, oh, great. Now all I have to do is just be perfect in every way, pretty much uh, Mary Poppins. Like, like what, what is this? How am I supposed to be perfect? Because that's what holy means. When the Bible says, be ye holy, it means perfect, altogether whole. That's what you should remember when, you, when we say, we sang the, the song of heaven, that they sing around the throne of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The word holy means altogether perfect without, uh, without need, lacking for nothing, um, perfect. That's the Lord. The Lord is holy. That's why we call it the Holy Bible because it lacks nothing. We call God holy because he's perfect. But now you're like, oh, great. I have to be holy. And you close your Bible and your morning devotions and you, I can never be holy. But see, when I read that, I don't get bummed out. Oh, I'll agree with you. I'm far from practically being holy. But when I read this verse, my heart leaps for joy because I know that practically I'm a work in progress and, and I want to be holy and I want to get closer to being more and more like the Lord. And, but I fail every single day. I, I fail every minute of every day. Like Paul would say, oh, I find in my flesh there dwells no good thing. I agree with Paul, but that doesn't discourage me. When I read, be ye holy as I, the Lord, am holy, um, good news. Um, you know, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. A new creature, old things are passed away, all things are become new. And, and then what happens is the Lord does something called imputed righteousness. It's a doctrine. I did a whole teaching on imputed righteousness. You can look it up. Um, it's an important doctrine of, of the Christian faith. In the book of Romans, Paul spends a lot of time saying how the Lord takes a very unrighteous people like us and he imputes holiness or righteousness upon us. That's why the, uh, Isaiah the prophet said, he will robe you in his righteousness. You and I are practically, like we know, we're practically messed up sinners, but positionally in Christ, we're declared perfect, we're declared holy, um, even as if we'd never sinned. That's justification. So when you go to the gates of heaven and the Lord looks at you, he's not gonna say, well, I smell smoke, but I guess I'll let you in because I'm just a nice guy. No, the Lord's gonna look at you and say, enter in thou good and faithful servant. You'll be like, you're talking to me? And the Lord said, remember, I made you holy. I, I declared you to be positionally in Christ righteous because Jesus died for your sins and, and did away with your sins. 
Um, so when you see that little, that little scripture, don't forget it, First Peter 1, 16, you know, be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. I hope that when you read your Bible, it doesn't make you feel like, oh man, I'm so far from that. Remember what the rest of the Bible teaches. This is not meant to make you feel burdened. Oh, I better be more holy. It's I get to be holy. Uh, I'm positionally in Christ holy, but I also practically, because God is so kind, his kindness leads us to what? Repentance. So when, he, when I realize I'm positionally in Christ holy, it makes me wanna practically become more and more holy, even though I'm very far from that, I'm gonna keep working on it. Test, uh, what number are we on, number four? It is finished, what do you hear with that? Uh, well, some people, if you're a new reader to the Bible, you might even get this wrong. Uh, be ye holy as I, Lord, am always something you have to, but what about it is finished? Well, some people kind of think, well, Jesus Christ is crying out on the cross. It's John 19, 30, there where it says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. You might read that, that well, Jesus was suffering on the cross. I'd be finished with humanity too. I'd be done with people hanging me on the cross and, and I, I, you know, I, I willingly went to the cross, but Matt, I, I'm done with this, get me out of here. Um, some people don't understand. This wasn't a cry of a suffering, whimpering, beaten man. Um, finally, my suffering is done, it is finished and giving up those. That's not what happened. You gotta know what's going on when you read the rest of scripture, all in context of itself. When Jesus said, it is finished, what was finished? Christ battle of winning the victory over sin and death was finished. It's like a cry of victory. Like when I, when I read, it is finished. Um, wow, it's such a glorious declaration. Um, you know, and, 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 and some people will hear this and they go, oh, Jesus was just done being on the cross. It's finished, it's over, whatever. No, this is a cry of victory for all of humanity. When Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, we should all say, yes. Praise be to the Lord. The, the law of sin and death that was against me, dooming me to hell, Jesus fought that battle and won that victory on the cross and that victory was finished. Te telestai. Um, what a glorious declaration that is. <laughs> How do you hear the scripture? You gotta hear it correctly. It's like the little old couple. They were um, uh, 95 years old. They were having family and friends over because it was their 75th wedding anniversary. And the guy gets out his little Martinelli glass, ting, 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 ting. And the old fellow, he goes, ladies and gentlemen, I just wanna say to my beautiful wife, in these 75 years of marriage, I found you tried and true. And she looked at him, squinted her eyes and, what? Um, I, 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 in these 75 years, she was a little hard of hearing, you know. I, I found you tried and true. Huh? Uh, he said, tried and true. Like he, he had to you know, really emphasize. And then she looked at him and said, well, in these 75 years of marriage, I'm sick and tired of you too. <laughs> I wonder if some of you read the Bible like that. Well, great Lord, go and sit no more. Be holy as I, the Lord of holy. And where in the world are you at? And you know, like, like some people read the Bible, they just get it all wrong. Um, presidents of the United States do this all the time when they quote the Bible. Um, it's always embarrassing when politicians start quoting scripture. In two Corinthians, um, it's like, ouch. But, but how do you hear the scripture? And, and, and I, you know, you, you, kinda, you kinda understand if you're, if you're reading the scripture and you go away bummed and condemned and blue, there's, let me finish with this just real quick. Would you flip over to James chapter three and we'll finish with this little last notion. In James chapter three, this is one of the most um, utility, usable, 
tools that the Bible gives you and me. And here's how you can know, am I hearing this rightly or is it from Satan that what I'm hearing? Because I believe Satan even uses scripture. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Jesus said, it is written. Every time he responded to Satan, he said, it is written. Well, then Satan started playing that, that same. He said, well, it is written. And Satan started even quoting scripture. So that makes me a little concerned. If Satan's quoting scripture, what does that mean? He twists scripture and will use it. And his goal is to make you walk away thinking God's mad at you. Uh, he accuses you day and night, making you feel bad about your sins. And if you're not reading scripture rightly, you might be um, in big trouble. And, and, and this, this little tool here in James 3 will help you discern. Is this from God? My, the feelings that I'm feeling after reading the scripture and hearing God's word, is this, is this right or is it wrong? Well, here's the sieve that you can run it through. James chapter three, let's start in verse 13. James three thirteen. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or lifestyle um, his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, don't lie against the truth. This wisdom, you might say so-called wisdom, descends not from above heaven, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envy and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. Man, no matter what you're doing in this life, if you're doing stuff, reading stuff, talking about stuff, and it causes strife and confusion and envy and problems like this, you can say, man, is this of the Lord? Duh, no. It's earthly, sensual, and devilish. By the way, um, for those of us that maybe watch the news a lot, news junkie, if you're a news junkie, um, uh, how do you feel after watching a whole day of news? Do you have strife in your heart? Confusion? Um, envy? Um, well, that could be because it's all from Satan, and he wants you to feel that way. Be careful what you take in. But if you're reading the Bible and you're, you're feeling confusion, and strife in your heart, then you can say, well, you know what? That's not from the Lord. I'm not receiving this really from the Lord. But then it gives us the antithesis, the other side of the coin. Check out verse 17. It says in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above heaven is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated or to apply to your life, easy to be enacted, you might say, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and, I love this, verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. When you're reading the scripture, like, remember our psalm that said, um, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord are right, making wise the simple, like, um, the, bring joy, you know, like, the, that's the result of reading scripture, according to the psalmist. Then we have the sieve of James chapter three that says, man, if you're reading the scripture and you end up with strife and, and confusion in your heart and you're struggling, that's not of the Lord. And so what do you do? I would recommend that you pray, Lord, give me a spiritual hearing aid. I think James chapter three is a spiritual hearing aid. You can kind of say, Lord, am I hearing your word correctly? So when I hear the heavy scriptures and I start, um, you know, uh, seeing the blood and guts and, and the death and the stuff of the Old Testament, does it make your heart leap with joy? Lord, thank you for not making me part of that. I should have been part of that crew. I should be the one judged for my sins, like the Old Testament law. The law kills, and it drives us to the grace and the kindness and the compassion of Jesus Christ. The whole story always ends. No matter what 
Bible lesson you're learning, it all concludes with Jesus Christ. So if you find yourself in strife and contention and bitter and, and we're hearing Bible stories and scriptures and you're, you know, or even things like Bible prophecy. Some of you are like, oh man, Bible prophecy, it makes me stressed out and I don't like hearing about wars and rumors of wars. Well, Jesus talked about that. But see, when I talk about Bible prophecy, you might, some people think I'm crazy because I'm, I'm talking about you know, wars and rumors of war and I have a smile on my face. Why? Because that means Jesus is coming soon. I rejoice and I look forward to his coming. Jesus said, taught us to you know, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that's what we look forward to. We, for the Christian, it all ends up happily ever after. So if you're hearing the scriptures wrongly, you'll end up with condemn, condemnation, bitterness, strife. That's not of the Lord. May the Lord give us ears to hear by the spirit of God, the truth of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, let's pray. With your heads bowed, I'd just like to say, maybe some of you have never accepted Christ because that's what you've heard. The Bible full of blood and guts and all this stuff and wrath and ethnic cleansing or that your college professors told you. But if that's you and you're saying, Brad, I didn't realize it all kind of ends with the Lord's kindness and compassion and delivering humanity from our sinful condition. Um, that's the truth of the matter. And maybe for whatever reason, you've been hesitant thinking God's an angry God in heaven. No, God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him will not perish. And so I would just invite you, as Jesus would invite you, to accept him as your savior. Nobody can be saved by any other name than that of Jesus Christ. It all ends good for the believer in Christ because he loves you and he's compassionate and his words towards you are gracious words. But you gotta receive that, you gotta accept that. To be a Christian, to be saved, to go into heaven, the Bible says you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. And if you do that, you'll be saved. So I'd like to invite you to do that. If you're a person who's saying, Brett, I wanna do that this morning, I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you stand up in front of anybody, but right where you sit with all the heads bowed here and, and Christians, would you be in prayer? Um, I wonder if, if you would just raise your hand, look up at me and just kind of acknowledge, give me a nod. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just acknowledge you and we'll pray together a confession of, of faith. Anybody, let me just look around. If, if I can't see, just give me a quick wave uh, and I'll acknowledge you right now before we back it up. Awesome, cool, awesome. See you over there, good. Right there and there, good. You, awesome. Good, good. Anybody else? I'm just gonna look around a little more. Cool. Good, I see you. Awesome. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. And church family, let's pray this out loud. Let's all get together and pray with these 10 or 12 folks right now. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave, and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you, Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, so great a salvation. You're so merciful and kind. And Lord, these people have just confessed this. Lord, I pray that they would just have that sense of the reality that their sins are remembered no more, that you've forgiven past, present, even future. Lord, that we're not gonna be perfect from this moment forward, but we are perfectly forgiven. May they know your love. May they grow in their faith. Bless them, wrap your loving arms around them, we pray. And for all of us, Lord, help us to have the right hearing of scripture. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.